Let's take a look at some of the introductory no notes then. Um, study outline of Egypt, the introduction. If you, if you downloaded it, you have it on your phone or computer, or whatever, uh, have a hard copy. However you want to do that, I just want to go over a couple of things real quickly uh, by way of introduction. And number one, the author is Moses. Now, I'm going to be very blunt. The higher critic and the critic of the Bible, this was the very first thing they attacked. The very first theologically liberal attack was on the authorship of the first five books of the Bible. And the conclusion was, this was the logic. Moses couldn't have written it. Why? Well, he just couldn't have written it. Therefore, somebody else wrote it. I mean, it's just the logic. I've read and studied this stuff, but it's just amazing. And yet, what I did in your notes there, I just gave you all of the references that assign authorship of the book of Exodus to Moses, including Jesus Christ. When he quotes... And you see it, Luke 16, John 7, Mark, etc. When he quotes, he says, as Moses said. <laughs> and all I'm saying to you is the, the, the case that Moses is the author of not only the book of Exodus, but the first five books of the Bible, is very strong and it's very compelling. And so I just I want to draw your attention to that as a very significant point. Until about 120 years ago or so, there was just no dispute. I mean, you know, everybody just accepted what the Bible says. Moses wrote these uh, books, but uh, it became a test of critical scholarship, and they abandoned it. But uh, I didn't, and most of the men I all the men I studied under, all the things I've used in my whole life, the strong, strong case for Mosaic authorship is there. It was written somewhere between 1440 and 1400 B.C., and I'll explain some of those dates in just a minute. Just for information, I think you know this, but in case you don't, um, the first five books of the Bible are sometimes called the Pentateuch. Penta is a prefix, which means five. So the Pentateuch. Another reference, I actually didn't put that in the notes, but another reference to these books, the first five books of the Bible, it's sometimes called Torah. And that's T-O-R-A. Torah is actually a Hebrew word. Uh, and we're, all we're doing is bring a Hebrew word into English, T-O-R-A, <coughs> Torah, which sometimes, incorrectly, but sometimes is translated law. I just want to do, I just want to alert you to that, because as we read the scriptures and as we read about the scriptures, sometimes you will, you might read somebody referring to the Pentateuch. Well, you know what that is, first five books. They refer to Torah. Usually they're referring to, not always, but almost always, the first five books of the Old Testament, and they often use it as a synonym for the law. <clears throat> so, why should we study this book, in addition to the fact that I decided we're going to study it? But why should we study it? I, I suggest four major reasons there. Number one, we learn much about God, his nature, his character, and his purpose. The book of Exodus is a major turn in terms of the uh, redemptive plan of God, what God is going to do redemptively for the human race. Uh, the book of Exodus is, is a very important part of that because God liberates the people of Israel from Egypt, uh, gives them their constitution, the law, 
and is setting everything up for giving them their land, which, as you know, is the land of Canaan, the promised land, and so on. And what we'll see here in terms of the character of God and the nature of God, Genesis really, really unveils that in a very unique way, particularly when it comes to the ten plagues that God um, uses to force Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go. When we get to that, that's chapter 7 and following. When we get to that, you, you will hear me say, and that's exactly what occurs, God declares war on the Egyptian worldview. He will dismantle that worldview. Every aspect of it, every part of it, every assumption of it, every theological foundation stone of it, and it's, it's, it's a very, very important part of the Bible. We learn a great deal about God and, and his ways and his power and his right to do this to show the inadequacy and stupidity of a worldview that denies his existence. He will do that in a masterful way. The theme of deliverance, second bullet there, is an important redemptive theme which is a watershed of Israel linking Abraham to the theocratic nation and their constitution. <clears throat> now, those some big words there, but I hope that makes sense. In other words, he will deliver them from Egypt, bondage. They're there for 430 years in bondage. To establish them as a nation, he will use that word, you are a nation, a community, and I am about to give you my law, the constitution of your community of your nation, if you will. <clears throat> Thirdly, and this is, we're going to spend quite a bit of time when we get to chapter 20 and so on, but God's moral law, the, the summary of that is the Ten Commandments. But it is then fleshed out. Every one of the commands that God gives to Israel is connected to one of the Ten Commandments. And it, you'll see why, and I'm going to do it in a way that perhaps you've not ever had it done, and it's reflected a little bit in your notes. So that's I mean, it's way ahead. It'll be months till we get there. But God's moral law is revealed there. The moral law of God is implied very clearly, even with Adam in Genesis 1 and 2. But with, with the, again, the, what we call the Ten Commandments, or they're sometimes called the Decalogue, you see God's moral law, his moral character revealed. And as the creator of this universe and as the redeemer he has the right to establish his moral law. And as we will argue when we get to that, this is for the good of humanity. This isn't, this isn't to, to restrict. This isn't to hem in and prevent people from being free. This is to set the parameters of what freedom under God really looks like. And we'll get to that later on. And then finally, the holiness of God is really revealed as, and we'll see this at the end of the book, we will not read every single verse of that. It can be quite cumbersome, but we are going to go through it in summary fashion. The tabernacle, and later, of course, the temple when Solomon builds it, but the tabernacle really does reveal the holiness of God. It's meticulous, it's detailed, and each and every part has a meaning to it. And that's what we're going to try to do as we get through that um, June or something, whenever we get to it uh, in our study. All right, that's just, I'm trying to make a case of why it's important to study the book of Exodus, and, and I hope that at least gives you a little bit 
of an overview of that. Maybe just a comment on the term exodus. Exodus is actually the transliteration of a Greek term, not a Hebrew term, of a Greek term. Because remember, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek. We call that the Septuagint. And many of the titles of the books of the Old Testament reflect that Greek translation, that Septuagint translation. Deuteronomy is another example of that, as you will see uh, later on. All right? What was the Greek word Exodus. Exodus. That's it. Yeah, yeah, it's just transliterating the Greek word, exodos, into English. Uh, the next page is a synthetic outline of the book. When I was in graduate school, I had to do a synthetic outline of every book of the Bible. But Charles Swindoll posted his online, and I'm going to tell you, his are far superior to mine. So I just downloaded his. I love to use synthetic outlines, which is what this is. Synthetic outline. But I love to use this because it really captures, in just one visual, it captures the outline argument of the book. And so, you know, it's just one way to look at it. You can see bondage, deliverance, journey, law, tabernacle. That's the book of Exodus, right across the top. And then he gives you the kind of key words and key themes throughout it. But that may or may not be important to you, but I like synthetic outlines, so. I will refer to that uh, as, as we get into the, into the uh, material. The other thing I want to do before we get into Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, is this little timeline, okay? Take a look at that for just a minute, because um, there is a very significant level of certainty about the chronology now in the Old Testament, <clears throat> You'll see some debate about a couple of dates, but if you start, we have already covered Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We've covered all of those. They're the patriarchs. They're the fathers of the nation of Israel, all right? And those dates that are reflected here under each one of the little blocks with that patriarch's name are very accurate and substantially verified dates. You understand what I mean by that? This isn't just a shot in the dark. These are pretty certain. They're verified by a lot of evidence and so on. And then you see, and I just, in my own copy, I just used a, a yellow highlighter, but we are now, uh, now going to begin to look at this big block, Israel in Egypt, 430 years. And you'll see the date right below that with a little arrow, 1876 B.C. That is when Israel moves to Egypt. Who's Israel? You don't have this? We don't have that. The one we're missing. We're missing that one. At least it wasn't in the packet that you initially sent. Maybe it was one of the extra Is flyers. this, and then, and yeah. then this goes. Well you, ha- well, you have a chronology there. Yeah, that part. But all we got was that I'm just missing that one place, I think. Yeah. Well, I didn't get the other one either. I didn't get the synthetic one. It is. It's front and back. It's front and back. Okay. All right. Well... <clears throat> What you have is very similar to this. Okay. But we'll, um, if you really want me to, I'll make a copy of this and send it to Fred and Fred to send it out. Okay. All right. So for now, that's, uh, that's all we'll do with, with that. You ready to start the book? Yeah. Nobody's ready? Oh, you're, oh, you're ready. All right. Here we go. Now, I'm going to be, for the most uh, time of the time when we're in the book, uh, I'm going to be using the NIV here. 
I like how they translate some of this. So, um, and since I'm teaching it, I'm choosing to use that. And if you don't like it, um, that's tough. No, I'm just kidding. I, I mean, there are a lot of translations, but they're all, there's not a lot of difficulty with this. But there are a couple passages where I really like the NAD and how they dealt with it. All right, just look at the first paragraph, which is verses 1 through 5. And all this is doing, all of this you know, but these are the names of the sons of Israel. Who's Israel? You keep asking that because I want to make sure you got that. Remember, Israel is the covenant name of Jacob, who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. And then you just have the listing of his sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. The first six sons, all children of Leah. Right? Just a review. Benjamin, whose mother was Benjamin? Rachel. Rachel. Dan, Naphtali. Dan and Naphtali. They are the they are the sons of Rachel's servant. Okay? Then Gad and Asher, they are the sons of Leah's servant. Then the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now that all of that is a review. None of that is new. You already know all that. But that's important because what Moses is doing in writing this is linking the patriarchal period with Exodus. He's linking the patriarchal era, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their children, with the Exodus. Because now they're in Egypt. And what is extremely important is the next paragraph. So, what year do Jacob and his clan move into Egypt? 1876 B.C. That's in your chart. It's in the chart I have, which I'll send to Fred. But it's just establishing that. There's no question about that. There's, unless you're an extreme critic of Scripture, there's just no question. We know and can identify that date. That may not be important to you, but I want you to think that way because, man, these are historical books. And we can identify these events with a very specific date, which enables us then to determine what else was going on at that time in the Middle Eastern world, which we'll briefly talk about in just a little bit. Now, verse 6. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died. Okay? That's how the book of Genesis ended. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. I love that description. So, uh, what's going on? There is a population explosion. Now, let's review again. Where did Joseph and Pharaoh put Jacob's clan? In Goshen. Remember that? I gave you a map. We looked at all of that. That's along the Nile Delta on the eastern side of the Nile. And it's a very large area. And <clears throat> what, what <laughs> I love how Moses does this, and it's translated very, very well. And the land was filled with them. Goshen is crawling with Jews everywhere. I mean, it's, just, it's everywhere, and that's the point. 
There is a population explosion, and we'll talk about this in a, in a, in a couple of chapters. Uh, we will be able to accurately estimate the number that this clan grows from 70. There is a, there is a, a census that's recorded for us in the book of Numbers. Each tribe has so many, and you will see over 600,000 men. So if you're not counting the women and children in that 600,000, which they're not, then how many people are there? Well, if there are 600,000 men, and most of the men have wives, and most of them have children, you're well over a million, if not getting pretty close to two million. So, I mean, we will talk about that in a, little, in a little bit. But all I'm trying to get you to see is Moses is just in one very, very brief paragraph summarizing for us a population explosion. Right. Uh, how old were the men typically uh, in, this, uh, in Egypt, the Jews, uh, when they would marry? Um, and then did they procreate... Yes. Fairly yes. After that. Yes. Uh, they're marrying. They're marrying young. I mean, often a man married a little bit uh, older than a girl. Girls were typically married uh, in their teens, and so I mean, you know, I mean, fast forward to the time of Jesus. Mary, his mother, is is probably a teenager, fourteen, fifteen, maybe sixteen. That was not atypical, even throughout much of the much of the history of, of the nation. So, um, and typically, uh, families are very large. I mean, you see Joseph, he has 12 children, so plus Dinah. Maybe 20 or so. Yeah, yeah, they're often early 20s, and so, and almost immediately, they start having children. <clears throat> it was not like today, my kids, my son and his wife have been married for eight years, they have one child. My daughter and her husband have been married for about six years, and they don't have any. So you know, you know how that is. You keep his grand your parents keep saying, now don't you think it's time for you to start thinking about having children? Nah, we're gonna wait. Ed. Were they married Egyptians or did they no. stay within their clan? No, they stay within their they stay within their their tribe. As a matter of fact, now, this is uh, this is a general statement, but generally you married within your clan. You know, and now that there are exceptions to that, but if you're Born is um, uh, in the tribe of Manasseh, that's whom you marry. Not always, but generally. Now, verse 8 becomes very, very important. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Some of your translations have a new king who knew not Joseph. Now, I'm hoping you have this chart on page 4. Do you have this chart? You don't have this chart either? Turn the page. Page four. Uh-huh. It just dropped out. Mm-hmm. We don't have it. All right. I'm really upset about this. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to go into a little bit of the history of this? Sure. Or no? sure. Do you want me to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't have to because, you know, typically when this is preached in a in a Sunday morning sermon that Pastor Doug Linda this kind of stuff. But 
Jim, why don't you turn it over this so the rest of the people can see the board. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Egypt's history is divided in this way by historians. Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, and New Kingdom. And in between each of these, they call what they call an intermediate period. That's not really important. And there's another one right here. <clears throat> now, what is really important, Joseph and when the clan moves down to Goshen, the Nile Delta, in 1876, it's at the tail end of this Middle Kingdom. All of these Egyptian dynasties, the pharaohs and so on. And what happens here between this and the birth of the New Kingdom? Because this, the exodus and the material we're about to study is occurring in this kingdom. But in here, between the collapse of this and being of this, Egypt was conquered by a group of invaders called the Hyksos. They're Semitic. It's a Semitic tribe. It's really important because that helps us understand why the Pharaoh orders that the Jews be enslaved. Right, I'll explain that in just a minute. So what we're talking about here is this, this is a really a real long period of time, but as the Middle Kingdom collapses and it's, it's undertaken in a time of conquest by a group of Semitic warriors and raiders who use chariots and horses and are very successful in conquering the upper part of Egypt, Egypt collapses. Now it's re-energized and it's refocused. It's a whole new dynasty in place. And the dynasty and the, the pharaoh that we are about to start talking about is Amenhotep I. <clears throat> this is a new dynasty. This is a new kingdom. Egypt is reorganizing itself after a period of terrible chaos. And the chaos was energized by a group of Semitic people. Now remember, the Semitic peoples are all the descendants of Shem, if you go back to Genesis chapter 9. I'm giving you maybe more information than you really need. But this is, this is a very significant development because now, now Egypt and its new government and its re-energized state is taking a much more critical look of the Jews. That's why when it says the Pharaoh didn't know anything about Egypt, what does that mean? We forgot all the promises that Egypt had made to Joseph. He forgot all the promises that Egypt had made to protect and care for Joseph's clan in Goshen. And in addition, there is a fear of outsiders. And they look at this large segment, because it's very large. I mean, on the map, it, it, dis, it disguises how huge it really is. Goshen is a large area. And now concentrated in, in that area are hundreds of thousands of Semitic peoples. And so the Egyptian government takes a very different 
view of those people. Do you understand? That's what Moses is telling us. Amenhotep, who didn't know Joseph, didn't know anything about Joseph, didn't know the promises made to Joseph, said, look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So you have two fears of the Egyptian government. This population explosion, and when it's basically saying, when we go to war again, they won't be for us. They'll be against us. That's the fear. So, well, when you say the raiders took over Egypt, the was that in the Middle Kingdom? No, no, that's the, I, I know it's a sloppy, John. This is this intermediate period between the collapse of the Middle and the beginning of the New. This is what they call an intermediate But were period. the Jews in Goshen at that intermediate time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. But and it's during that period of time that they, they begin to grow in population. But the Hyksos are controlling the... Mm-hmm political establishment, if you will, of Egypt. But the new, the new kingdom was basically, they were still Egyptian rulers. That's correct. I mean, they, That's, they, the Hyksos are not Egyptians, but now the Egyptians are back controlling the government, okay. controlling the political and bureaucratic establishments of the government, okay. if you want to put it that way. By the way, when this is how historians divide it up. When you woke up on January the 1st, so, well, now we're in the middle or new kingdom. No, no, no. This is, what, this is what historians have done to try to organize this very complicated periods of history. And it, it's okay. And, and it's, it's important to do that. And this is how Egyptian history is now organized for purposes of study. And everybody, uh, everybody agrees with that. Everybody adopts that view. How right. does your definition of Semitic peoples here relate to what we call... Semites here. The term anti-Semitic. Well, anti-Semitic today is largely a synonym for anti-Jewish. And and that's why, although that's just how it's used today, that's really really incorrect because Semitic peoples, if you look at Semitic, it's a very, very broad group of people of which the Jews are only a part. But it's just, that's how it has developed over the use of language that today in the 20th, and it was that way in the 20th century, anti-Semitic is largely a synonym for being anti-Jewish. I I heard that that was more specifically referring to Jews who wanted to live in their home. What is, anti-Semitic or Semitic? Well, the term Semitic, whether it's anti-Semitic or Semitic, that sometimes that, that pejorative is not, doesn't always refer to all Jews. Am I incorrect? <laughs> well, uh, you're asking a very good question, but it's actually a very complicated answer because it depends on what period of history you're talking about. I mean, it really does. You know, Israel, uh, the, the uh, nation or the people of Israel and so on, uh, were, were destroyed in terms of their homeland and their capital, Jerusalem, and their temple, and so on, A.D. 70, and were dispersed. And under, after the Bar Kook revolt in the 130s, they were, they were not even permitted to be in Jerusalem. And Emperor Hadrian, who was a very ruthless, actually formulated a policy of genocide against the Jews at that time, 
And it was, it was a horrible period. And then they spread. And then in a way, because they are spread out all over the place, there, there's a period where they're sort of insignificant because they are spread. But what starts to happen after Constantine, I'm, asking, I'm answering this question, you're probably telling you more than you really want to know, but as the, as the Roman government under Constantine then adopts Christianity, and then as hundred, a couple hundred years later, they begin to turn on the Jews, as this is the phrase that was used, as Christ killers. And uh, that then later in the medieval church history, now I'm, I'm just skipping through hundreds of years now, but later in history, medieval church history, I mean, it becomes the official policy of many of the governments that are a part of medieval Europe to, uh, to get rid of the Jews. And then that, that's... Part of what you skipped over was the origins of Islam. Well, yeah, that does not really directly relate to that, though. That, that comes a little bit later. Uh, and actually, in early Islam, they're very friendly to the Jews. Very, uh, Muhammad has said, they're people of the book. We should treat them nicely. Well, that doesn't last. But, uh, but it's really not until 1492 in Spain where the Spanish government forces the Jews to leave kicks them out. It's the origin of what we call the Sephardic Jews. Sephardic is Hebrew for Spanish. And then, then that's a very significant turning point. Very significant turning point. Because then the Roman Catholic Church intentionally turns against the Jews. Wow, that's interesting. That happens to be the same year that Columbus... Exactly, exactly. Because as Queen Isabella of Spain is financing Columbus's voyages, she's also financing the extinguishing of the Jews and the Muslims. They're called the Moors. And it's official state policy. And then that, um, that's what leads to the Jews becoming more and more segregated, and it's the origin of that term, into ghettos, to live separate. And it becomes ugly. It becomes very, very ugly. And, I mean, over uh, there's a very good book that details all of this, <laughs> if you're interested in it. So, anyway. Yeah, it's called a cover. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's helpful to see the different dates, the 1876 and the 1400. That would be the back end of the, the, the new kingdom. That's right. Going back to the old kingdom, um, like, for example, when they first went down to Egypt, uh, the, the Abraham, Abraham, when he makes that first trip uh, uh, that's recorded for us in Genesis 12, uh, he's, that's the old kingdom. And the old kingdom, that's when the pyramids were built. Pyramids aren't built in the New Kingdom or the Little Kingdom. Pyramids are built here. And that and Abraham would have seen that. Joseph, <coughs> excuse me, comes to power in his role in the end of the Middle Kingdom, and the events that we're just about to begin studying is the beginning of the New Kingdom. Again, that's how historians have organized it. But these these three are all very, very different in terms of the character and nature of Egyptian history. Yes, exactly. And I mean, it dovetails too because in, in 1876 is when the clan moves into Goshen under Joseph's protection. I will argue a little bit later that at 1446 BC is the Exodus, the date of the Exodus. When they leave Egypt, we'll talk about that. I'll, I'll defend that date when we get to it a little bit later. 
How many uh, Jews are, are in the world today? About 14 and a half million. 14 and a half million. And that's defined as what? Their, their origin or their faith? Uh, it is not it not by faith. It's defined ethnically. If your mother's a Jew, you're a Jew. That's typically. I mean, it's really confusing. Some figures I've seen uh, when I was doing research for my book, uh, some figures have it as high as 18 million that are Jews. But it, it gets a little confusing because the Jewish government today in the modern state of Israel is confused in how they want to define what a Jew is. Because since 1948, the policy Israeli government is, if you're a Jew, you freely can come into the land. We'll automatically let you into the land of Israel. All you have to do is show you're a Jew. And so they, they've had some confusion on that. They really have. And so uh, they've tried to tighten it up. But if you know anything about Jewish politics, as my dear, dear friend, Ronnie Simone uh, in Israel, he's my guy, he says, um, you have two Jews in a room, you have three opinions. <laughs> you have to think about that. And he said, you put Jew, two Jews in a room, you have three opinions. So, <laughs> now, he, now, he is himself a Jewish man, so, I mean, he's just, he loves, he, he's a very, very good friend of mine. But it is, uh, when, when political decisions are made, in Israel, it's very contentious. It's very contentious. It's very difficult. So, at, Joseph was in the middle there. He had into the middle kingdom, yeah. yeah. And is that why the new kingdom didn't trust the Jews, because he served under somebody in that period? It's, it, it's really more, no, it's really more, this new pharaoh, the new dynasty that is coming into power, is doesn't even know or recognize anything that happened here. The fear, this is, this is an inference that's drawn, but I find it compelling. Because the Hyksos were Semitic peoples, and the Jews are Semitic peoples. There's part of that fear. That's why he thinks that. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah, it's a very, it's a legit. I mean, I'm not, I'm not justifying it, but it, it makes sense why they're afraid of them, from this perspective. So, um, what what follows is a three-part policy of the Egyptian government to get rid of the Jews. And that's what I want to look at if I can finish asking these yeah, questions. Yeah. Right. Um, Joseph was in the middle there. That's right. Now, and there's just, remember, this is a totally new dynasty, and it's separated by this very real threat. It's an existential threat to Egypt of the Hyksos. You know what I mean by existential? I mean that the actual survival of Egypt was at stake. And so there, there's just absolutely no recollection of any covenant promise, any covenant uh, arrangement with Joseph and the, and the Jews. So those pharaohs... They didn't have any history of before then. I mean, uh, you know, they they often. Um, this is these guys, you're asking great questions, guys. <laughs> yeah. uh, they would often expunge the names of the previous pharaohs, and they would start history all over again. Now, this is year one. I'm the new ruler. This is year one. That's why we have notorious difficulty trying to date everything in ancient Egypt. Because every pharaoh comes into power, starts a new dynasty, and says, okay, this is year one. 
well, okay, but it's really year 3,426, you know. Yeah. And it's, just, it's really, but there are a number of things that we've been able to do through history that have helped us to really reach a level of certainty about a lot of these dates, regardless of what the pharaohs are doing. Did, did Egyptians have a, a, a bit of a problem with having babies? Did they not, was their productive, reproductive rate low? I'm asking a question because there's a question that a Hillsdale professor asked, what's the government's legitimate interest in marriage? The first half of the answer is procreation yeah. in order to protect the country from invasion. Yeah. Uh, one of the problems that develops in Egypt over time is the royal family, which is the dynastic family, they're marrying one another, brothers and sisters. Like Cleopatra was married to her brother. This is the Cleopatra going fast forwarding to 40 BC when Julius Caesar's running around. And I mean, uh, I'm going to talk about who the who is the woman who rescues Moses from the Nile River. And I will argue that's exceptional. She was married to her brother. And so, I mean, that was a very typical and normal thing to do in the ancient world that was not. Today, if my son would have come to me and say, I want to marry cousin Sarah. No, you can't marry Sarah. You know, I mean, it's just, we don't think like that. We know genetically that can be harmful and so on. They didn't have that understanding at all. So there are problems that develop in um, some of these Egyptian dynasties. And, and sometimes that, fertility becomes a real issue. Was that just with the royalty or was that throughout the, the land? It was, it was systemic with, with the leadership, but it was, it was perhaps throughout the, throughout the land. But it was systemic with the Egyptian leadership. This is the last question. You know, we're only on verse six. No, it's all right. When you said that Abraham would have seen the He would have seen the pyramids. Was he, down, was he down in Egypt? Remember, in, in chapter 12, in chapter 12, there's famine in the land, so he and Sarai go down to Egypt. Oh, that's right. Remember that? And that's when he lies and says, she's my sister and all that. Remember that? The 14 and a half million Jews, how many are in Israel? Today? Today, Today uh, the number of Jews in Israel is about seven and a half million. The largest concentration of Jews on planet Earth is now the nation state of Israel. It had been uh, for uh, about a hundred years, it had been the United States. New York would be the next largest. Well, yeah, I mean, Brooklyn, my son, when he worked on Wall Street, so, I lived in Brooklyn. World, worldwide, 14 and a half Yeah, million. about 14 and a half million. Again, okay. defining that narrowly as your mother's a Jew. Um, it may be a little higher than that, but it's not. And you know why it's not very large? Because of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. that, that was a very, very significant. It was decimating to the population, the worldwide population of Jews. So um, that was in 2008, the number of Jews in Israel exceeded for the first time, exceeded the number of Jews in the United States. That's a very important date. And they're now estimating... Um, they're now estimating that because of the number of Jews moving back to Israel, continuing to do that, as well as this, their, their just procreation, that uh, the number of Jews living in Israel could get to uh, 12 million uh, over the next uh, decade. So that's a very significant. And uh, again, if you believe um, that God is bringing back his people to their land and this is going to fulfill the covenant promise, that's significant. If you don't believe that, then that's fine.
Now, verse 11. All right, now, you, you have a new kingdom, you have a new pharaoh, you have a new regime. They do not look at the Jews, the children of Israel, in the same way. Now, what I want you to do, I'm going to give you the broad, because it's 12.30 already, but I want to give you the broad stroke outline of the rest of chapter 1. Because the government of Egypt now turns on the Jews. The very first thing they do in verse 11 is they enslave them. The second thing they do in verse um, uh, 15 and following is they order a genocidal practice, kill all the boys. The third thing they do is every boy, this is verse 22, every boy throw him into the Nile. So the Egyptian government begins to pursue a policy of slavery and then selective genocidal policies. Why? Because of what we read in verse 10. They're afraid of this population explosion, and they're afraid that with this large population, they could turn on the Egyptian government. So, verse 11 they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses. Now, do you have a map on page 9? Please tell me you have a map on page 9. This goes forward. You do not. Yeah, you do. All right. Yeah. I must have a different, I have taught this in a number of different places. I must have a different note packet than I sent to you. So we'll talk about where Pithom and Ramses is later on, because they'll come up again. These are two major fortress cities that the Jews built during their slavery. They're storage fortress cities. But the more they oppressed, verse 12, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Now, I mean, this is significant because what's happening is now the official policy of the Egyptian government is doing a 180-degree turn from what it had been when Joseph was in power, Right? Where Joseph said, I'll protect you. Pharaoh said, I'll protect you and care for you. Now the Egyptian government is turning 180 degrees opposite. Mm -hmm. And they're enslaving them. And not only, I mean, to enslave people, to force them, that is not necessarily abnormal or unusual in the ancient world. What is, what, what is important here is the words bitter and harsh and ruthless. Because what, what the Egyptian government is doing now is as, a, as a, a part of state policy is exploiting and oppressing this group of people because they see them as a threat to the state. Then the pharaoh <coughs> takes a second step. It's a genocidal step. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, now, those two, they're, they're, they're very important names. These apparently were the two women who headed up the entire midwife service. Now, you, you know what I mean by midwife, don't you? Okay, so, I mean, that was typical. And the typical way in which babies were born, it's not the way if you 
witnessed your children being born or your grandchildren being born in a hospital room. No, the women stood up and the babies were delivered vertically instead of horizontally. And a midwife helped them get through that to push and get the baby to shoot out. <laughs> That's a horrible way to put it. But I mean, I mean, you know what I mean. If you try to you picture how babies are born today in the United mm -hmm. States, that's not how they were born in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. They would they would there was a special thing they would stand on and the baby would come out vertically. So Pharaoh gives these this two women who are head of the whole midwife service. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth. Observe on the delivery stool, because they're on a stool, the baby comes vertically. If it's a boy, literally in the Hebrew, if it's a son, kill him. That's genocide. That's intentional murder of people to make it impossible for them to procreate. Because if you kill all the boys, you're not going to have any more Jews. Right? But if it's a girl, let them live. So the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous, and they give birth long before we even get there. Is that a true statement? Is it a lie? They might have delayed getting there purposely. This race, I usually use this verse as well as Rahab in, in the conquest on Jericho to raise an ethical question. It's, I'm just throwing it on the table. Is it ever proper to lie? Related to the fact that the sixth commandment says, Thou shalt not murder. Not God's moral law says you're not supposed to lie. God's moral law says you're not supposed to kill. And the, the, the Hebrew word for kill there is intentionally premeditated kill, not involuntary manslaughter or anything like that. Another thing to note is that the midwives were not Egyptian, they were. They were Jews, and they believed in the Lord and the mm -hmm. fear of the mm -hmm. Lord. So that's all right for them to lie. Then. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> okay. So if you, read, if you read, I don't know which. If I'm getting the you know exact right translation, and I don't know the the, the Hebrew, but what it says is, "Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor." Is that? I've always wondered about that clause against thy neighbor. How important is that? Well, your neighbor is your neighbor, the one who lives next to you, whether whoever it might be. Um, I'm not sure that is um, where you can find the freedom to lie a little bit. This is an interesting and... and um, well, Abraham lied to Sarah, right? Mm -hmm. Good result? No, not a good result. It's a pretty disastrous result, at least momentarily. This is this is one of those questions. I'm not going to settle. We're not going to settle here. It, it's really a uh, one um, like with Rahab. Um, 
you have to probe and think about the level of maturity and spiritual vitality in Rahab's life, let alone these Hebrew midwives. But it says they feared God. Feared God more than Pharaoh, is the assumption. Some, some Christian ethicists have argued for a hierarchical view of ethics. That when you have two ethical absolutes in conflict, which you certainly do here, ethical absolute number one is the preservation of life. Ethical absolute number two is you don't lie. So in a fallen, broken world, if you're facing a situation where to preserve life, which is a higher ethic, you could argue, than misrepresenting the truth, in a fallen, broken world, same thing that many, many, many Christians faced in 1941, 42, and 43. When Hitler began the industrial, anti-Semitic, genocidal policy, the final solution. And you remember, whether you're, if you know the story of Corey Ten Boom, for example, or you know many of the, there were just dozens and dozens and dozens of these stories, Christians hiding Jews. And the Gestapo would knock on the door. Do you have Jews in this house? How'd you answer the question? No. Mm-hmm. All the while, up on the third floor of your house, you you build a special little area that is hidden. Nobody can see it, but you've got two families of Jews up there. This is a, this is part. As I tell my students in my ethics class, this is part of the challenge of living in a fallen, broken world. How do you resolve, as a Christian, a situation that you will face where two ethical absolutes are in conflict? And I have a series, I have a book I give my students. Uh, It's a series of 20 case studies. And every one of those case studies is just like this. Two ethical absolutes are in conflict. How do you resolve that and still honor God? So we're not going to resolve that here this morning. We're not, I'm not going to answer this. But it raises this kind of a question because these women who are head of the midwife service of, 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 in Goshen, they are not obeying Pharaoh. They obey God. Which means they are not going to kill these little baby boys. And their answer is, the Jewish women are so vital and vigorous they, they give birth to the babies even before we show up. So I'm sorry, Pharaoh. God was kind, verse 20 says, to these midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families of their own. So God's blessing them lying, isn't he? Or is he blessing them in terms of their fearful response to him rather than Pharaoh. Third, yes. Just a quick question. Could we, could we uh, for the sake of the midwives, give them the little Romans 5.13 loophole, which is... Are you looking for loopholes in the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> which just wouldn't have necessarily been but for them, uh, Paul says, to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Hmm. And God had not yet set the specifics for his people. Okay. <laughs> yes, uh, that, is, that is a passage some appeal to. <clears throat> Look at the third thing Pharaoh does. Verse 
verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, throw him into the Nile. This is, this is not, you know, killing them at birth. This is every Hebrew boy that's bone, throw him in the Nile. So this is intentional, decisive, willful, genocidal murder. Yeah, yeah. There's not necessarily a an age limit here. Why? It takes you back to verse 10. The fear the Egyptian government has of these Jews multiplying and increasing in numbers as they have been in Goshen. <coughs> so it's in that context that you read of the birth of Moses in chapter 2. All right, uh, one chapter down. It's a short one, chapter 2. We'll only get started with this. Now, a man of the house of Levi, from chapter 6, we will learn his name is Amram, A-M-R-A-M, married a Levite woman, we will learn in chapter 6. Her name is Jochebed, J-O-C-H-E. B-E-D. So we know their names. These, as you know, are the parents of Moses. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. The year is 1526 B.C. When she saw, NIV translates it this way, when she saw that he was a fine child. Some of your translations might have beautiful child. Some of your translations might have healthy child. That, that term, that Hebrew term, that adjective describing child can mean all of those things. Fine, beautiful, healthy child. Now what's she supposed to do with him? What's supposed to happen to him? He's to be thrown into the Nile. He's supposed to be killed. So what does she do? She hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, obviously, I mean, you know, a three-year month, two, one month, two month, three, even to hide a baby because of the way they cry and so on. But now, you know, it gets to four months and older. That's become more and more problematic. So she got a papyrus basket. NIV is correctly trained. Papyrus. Papyrus is a word for the reeds, the reeds along the Nile River. Okay? That's how they made baskets for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Now you know why she did that, because you know what she's going to do with it. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her, His sister, that is the baby's sister, Moses' sister, what's her name, by the way? Anybody know? Miriam. We'll, we'll talk about Miriam later on. Stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So, Jochebed is obeying Pharaoh's order. She's throwing him into the Nile. However, the Pharaoh didn't say throw him into the Nile in a papyrus basket that is thoroughly coated with tar. <laughs> now, this is what we believe 
Jochebed intentionally put Moses in the Nile where the daughter of Pharaoh bathed. So in other words, Jochebed has a plan. I am not going to be able to keep my son. They'll find out and they'll kill him. They'll throw him into the Nile. But I know something about the daughter of Pharaoh. I know that she doesn't have any children. And I know that she is the daughter of Moses I, who was a very powerful ruler, but impotent. And I'm going to trust that God is going to organize the events that she will take care of my son. That's exactly, this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing what God does here. And Pharaoh's daughter, her name, I believe, is Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut. She will become one of the most powerful women of the new kingdom. She will build an enormous temple and and a burial set of chambers to herself. You can go visit it. It's incredible. She's a very influential, very powerful woman. Here, she's young. She's childless. She saw the basket. Oh, my, I'm sorry. It's almost 10 of i got to quit. So if you're interested in what happens to Moses and what Hatshepsut does, come back next week, okay? I'm sorry. I didn't realize it was this late. I thought it was like 1230 or something. So I apologize for keeping I'm going to check on the note packet I sent to Fred. I'm thinking, well, I know I must not have said the, sent the one that I'm using to you. It's not terribly different in terms of content, but some of the charts and maps are a little bit different. I'll check on that, okay? So thanks for coming. Good to see you all. Um, just thank and praise the Lord for this wonderful, delightful weather we're having. Uh, you wouldn't do that, but I'm going to pray and thank him anyway, so let's pray, all right? Lord, we just thank you for our time today as we've begun our study of Exodus. And I'm trying, Lord, to anchor all of this in actual history, uh, naming the names of these pharaohs, trying to get the guys to see this is there's historical things happening here that are the backdrop to what the Bible is declaring for us. I hope it's meaningful and helpful to the men. It, it helps to make the Bible come alive and that you are definitely, without question, sovereignly and providentially ordering these events to accomplish your purpose, which is delivering the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. We now know why they're in bondage. We know what the fear of the government was. And that's why Moses becomes so important in this context. So now, Lord, we turn to the rest of our week as we go our separate ways. Lord, take care of us. Watch over us. I do pray for the family of Ed's friend that uh, did uh, pass away after this very bizarre, tragic accident last uh, weekend. So we pray for them in this time of grieving, comfort them and strengthen them in this time. And Lord, we have to trust you that for reasons that only eternity will explain, there is some purpose to this tragedy happening. As we read last week in Genesis 50, 
you meant that for evil, but God meant it for good. You can bring good out of a tragedy like this, and we would ask you to do that. So now go, as we go our separate ways in what we do and what we say, help us to represent you well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.